Well, happy Mother's Day to all of you, and I'm sure you have things that you would like to say to your mom. So if you're sitting next to the mother of your children, in a moment I want you to lean over and say, you are the sweetest thing in my life. And if your mother is anywhere in, ah, hold on, and if your mother is anywhere in sight, I want you to make your way to her right now and say, I owe my very existence to you. So go ahead and do that right now. Welcome to all of you who are here with us, whether you're here every week or you're visiting us for Mother's Day. We're really glad to have you here. Chapel Hill has been making a journey through a book called Romans. It's actually a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to Christians who lived in Rome, naturally. And as we find out, those uh, folks were a very diverse bunch. There were some Jews and there were some non-Jews called Gentiles. There were rich folks, there were not so rich folks. There were slaves and there were free people. So it was quite an odd group. But when you think about it, this is quite an odd group too, isn't it? I mean, I wonder if you've ever pondered what it is that we are doing here on a a Sunday morning. What is it that God brings us together? We come to worship God, but when we do, it is a collection of folks that would likely never hang out together otherwise. Then when we come from different backgrounds, different interests, different social groups, different uh, racial groups sometimes, were it not for our shared devotion to Christ, this group of people might never be together, might never hang out. But here we are because Jesus calls us together. He has said, you are going to be a part of my family, this strange and wonderful family of mine. Last week, the Apostle Paul was trying to explain that to us. And he used some very vivid imagery. He talked about us being a body, the body of Christ. A couple of weeks ago, I I used a a jello to illustrate what Paul says about conforming to, the, to this world, right? And, and if he'd had jello at the time, he would have said something. Well, here's something else. If Paul wanted to talk about the body of Christ, if he had this, he would have used this as his illustration. He would have said, this is the body, this is the body of Christ, and all of you have a part to play. He would, some of you are, are hands, and, uh, and some of you are noses, and some of you are mouths. And he said, taken together, all these wonderful Um, gifts that you each have. So you have to decide which of these you are. But he said, this is what the body of Christ looks like. And we need each other. Without all of these parts, we can't do the thing that God has created us to do. And yet Paul says, there are some of you that are envious. Like the nose says, I don't want to be a nose anymore. I want to be an eye. And the mouth says, I don't want to be a mouth anymore. I want to be an eye. And the head says, I don't want to be a mouth, a head anymore. I want to be an eye. And so you end up having this monstrosity that all I can do is see. Paul says, this is crazy. I need all of my people with all of their various gifts to work together to accomplish the kingdom of God. Otherwise, it's just a freaky looking like cyclopsy thing. Now, here's the deal. If we are designed this way, if God intentionally has put all of us together, our various temperaments, our various backgrounds, our various preferences, the thing is what makes us to be a good team for working can sometimes make it challenging for us to live together. So Paul, after he tells us in Romans 12 how it is that we are intended to work together, now he goes on to tell us how it is that we are to live together. If you want to follow along, this, you'll find this in Romans chapter 12, starting with verse 9. This is kind of a long list of things that Paul says. This ought to be a reflection of, of what God's, of Christ's body looks like. 
So it's kind of a long list, but what I want you to do is pay attention to the thing that kind of jumps out at you. When you say, ooh, that's one that I need to work at, maybe that's what the Holy Spirit is saying to you. So here's what Paul says the body of Christ ought to look like when it's coming together, how it ought to live together. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. This is a high task, a a kind of a daunting list, Lord. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to to digest that part of it you really want to speak to us about today as individuals and as your church. You speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're coming together, this diverse group. We want to be the kind of people, live the kind of lives together that God has intended for us to live. And so Paul gives us this example. Today's one of of those days. You know, sometimes I do more of a, a teaching than a preaching. And this might be one of those moments because there are so many rich words in this long list that I kind of want to dive in a little bit. And so once in a while, the Greek geek in me comes out, and you're just going to have to kind of go along for the ride. I find it fascinating, and I am quite certain you will find it fascinating. And even if it doesn't, here it is. This is what you're going to get. So buckle up your pew belt and, and work with me a little bit, and let's have fun as we kind of take, to get, take apart these pieces that Paul has laid before us, okay? Thank you. The very first cool car that I remember having as a family was a 1965 Malibu Super Sport. It was brand new. Any of you ever see a car like this? It was a very cool car. It was, uh, I wish we had it now. It was midnight blue. It was uh, tricked out with the sports package, which cost an extra 53 bucks that year for the sports package that year. It was three on the tree. How many even know what three on the tree means? All right. How many have ever had a three on the tree? It is awesome. This car was so fast and so fun. Turned out to be a real piece of junk, actually, but it was a very cool car. And uh, it, had, it was upholstered in tuck and roll upholstery. Remember that? So, the, you know, there were little ridges in the, the upholstery. In the back seat, there was tuck and roll, tuck and roll, tuck and roll, and then right down the middle was a line. And that line, as it turned out, was a really good thing for our family. Because my sister, Dana, and I um, tended to fight a little bit in the back seat. In fact, we fought so much that finally my folks made the rule, this is the line. You cannot cross over the line. It was like the DMZ between North and South Korea. There is no crossing over the line. So guess what I wanted to do? Absolutely. I wanted to irritate my sister. So this is what I would, I always sat behind mom. I was on the right side. And my hand, I would put my hand down on the seat, 
with my finger close to the line. And then I would walk over. I would wait until mom and dad were not looking. Dana always pretended not to be looking, but she was always looking because she knew I was about to, you know, enter into her territory. And so I'd wait till the right moment, stick my finger over the line. And she would scream like we had stuck her with a knife. She'd, ah, he's on my side, he's on my side. Pull back my thing. Mama turned around, too late. And I won again. <laughs> Sometimes it is not easy getting along in a family when you are two very different people. And Cindy, or whatever my sister's name was, Dana, Dana. <laughs> Dana and I are two very different people. The same is true for the church. We are different people, all of us. So how is it that this diverse group of people that God has called together, how do we live in a way that honors Christ and accomplishes the work of his kingdom? That's what Paul is talking about in this part. Where do we begin? Well, the starting point is interesting. If you were to summarize in one word the teaching of Jesus, if you had to pick one word to talk about the way that Christ intends for us to live with each other and to live in his world, what would that one word be? Exactly right. Love. Love. Jesus was once asked, asked, Master, what is the greatest commandment? His response was, love God, love your neighbor. When he was sitting with his disciples in the upper room on the night that he was going to, before he was betrayed, as he was sitting there, um, he, he told them, listen, I have a new commandment for you. The 10 is fine, but I got a new one for you. Love one another. He goes on to say, this is how the world will know that you are my disciples, by the way that you love one another. And the apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians in maybe one of his most famous of chapters, he said, faith and hope and love, all of these are a part of the Christian life. But he said, the greatest of these is, the greatest of these is love. So it's not very surprising then that Paul starts out this long laundry list of, uh, of things that we are supposed to exhibit in our lives together with love. That's his starting point. Now our translation says, let love be genuine. I wish you could look at the Greek because you'd see it's a lot shorter, a lot terser, a lot pithier. All it says is agape genuine. Agape genuine. Now, agape is a Greek word for love. You know that, I'm sure. There are other words for, for love, eros and phileo. But agape was the highest form of love. It was God love. And so he starts off with agape genuine. Now, what is interesting is up until now in Romans, the only time that Paul talks about love, he's talking about God's love. He never speaks about human love up until now for all these 11 plus chapters. It's God's love, the love of God, the agape of God. So he says God has poured out his love into our hearts in chapter four, in chapter five. In chapter five, he says God shows his love for us and and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He asked this question, what shall separate us from the love, the agape of God in Christ Jesus? And goes on to say, nothing, nothing. So this sacrificial, undeserved, agape love, he says all of it is about God. It all comes from God. Here's what's cool though. In this moment, Paul spins on his heels because he says, no, now you have the spirit of Jesus living in you. The spirit of Christ that is sanctifying you 
the Spirit of Christ that has given you gifts, the Spirit of Christ that has given you the power to live out those gifts. You know what else the Spirit of Christ has done, he says? The Spirit of Christ has given you the agape love of God. It's no longer something that's coming from God to you. Now that same agape love lives inside of you. The love of God lives inside of you, and it can go out. So he starts with this wonderful declarative statement, love, genuine. Love is genuine. The word for genuine is cool too. It's on hupokritos. Hupokritos. What does that word sound like? Hypocrite, right? On hupokritos. Hypocrite. In ancient theater, there was one actor that would often play several parts. He had a facility with languages, and the way you knew which part he was playing was he put on a different mask. So when he was playing this one part, he would put on this mask. When he was playing this other part, he would put on this mask. And so he would go out throughout the play, one guy playing many different parts, and the only way you could tell was what mask he happened to be wearing at that time. Guess what that actor was called? The hypocrite. Hippocrates. Now, guess which teacher was the first one ever to speak about the hypocrite in the terms that we understand it today as being a a phony, a religious faker? Guess which was the first teacher to speak that way? Jesus. Always a safe answer around here. Did you know that Jesus is the first historical teacher to use the word hypocrite in the way that we understand it today as a phony, a play actor, someone who's wearing masks? And the Greek word... On, when you put it in front of any word, it's a negation. So what on hypocritos means is not hypocrite. Agape, not hypocrite, he is saying. Paul starts his description of Christian community by saying, genuine, no masks, no games, no play acting, sacrificial, godlike love. That is the most important defining quality of the church. And we say, okay, fine, love, we're going to love. But what does that look like? I actually think that he starts with that as a heading. And then the rest of this passage is Paul's description of what non-hypocrite love looks like, what genuine agape should look like. Now, we can't cover all of them because there's 12 things listed. I could preach it all, but you wouldn't survive it. So we can't cover them all, but I I do. I want to kind of clump clump them together. And what I want you to do is try try not to figure out what to do with all of these things. I want you to pay attention to the one that the Holy Spirit sticks you on. When you get prompted a little bit, when you say, "Mm, that's the one that cuts a little close to the bone in my life, then I want you to assume that's the Spirit speaking to me. And to pay attention to what God's Word wants to do in your heart today, okay? So what does non-hypocrite agape look like? Well, first of all, Paul says it's not wimpy. It's not wimpy. Paul has just told us that we're going to love. He turns right around and says, now there's something I want you to hate. He said, I want you to let love be genuine. But the very next phrase he says is, abhor what is evil. The word could not be stronger. Abhor doesn't do it justice. It really is loathe it, hate it. He says, I want you to hate evil. Evil is that that anti-God power that is the work of our spiritual enemy, Satan. He said, he, then, and all we have to do is look around our world right now. All we got to do is watch the news or read the newspaper to realize that, that the evil stuff that is at work in us, another school shooting this week, another stabbing in Paris this week, and so it goes. We see this destruction, this distortion of God's creation. And Paul says, you should loathe it. You should discern what is evil and you should hate it. Now, here's the kicker, though. 
He's not calling us to hate someone. He's calling us to hate something. He's not calling us to to hate someone that might be ensnared in evil. He's calling us to, to hate the evil that traps and destroys people. In fact, Jesus was the one who told us that we are to love our enemies. Those people who want the worst for us, who want to destroy us, he says, I want you to love them. So that's the standard that Christ has set for us. We do not have permission to hate anyone, no matter what they feel about us. But, Paul says, we can hate the evil that ensnares people's lives. I was talking with a couple this week. They have a teenager who is making some very bad, very painful decisions. Very self-destructive, potentially, decisions. And they're trying to sort out how to love this child, even at the same time as they hate the evil into which she has been drawn. Do you realize this is increasingly difficult for us? There used to be a time when, as a culture, we kind of knew what was right and wrong, what was good and was bad. We kind of agreed on those things. But our culture is making it increasingly impossible to even make such declarations. It's an increasingly difficult to separate persons from their behavior. Our culture says it is not possible for us to love someone and yet at the same time hate the evil that might have ensnared their souls. In fact, the very idea of an objective standard of good and evil, of right and wrong, that also infuriates our world. Who are we to say what is good or not? Who are we to say what is right or not? But as believers in God as those who are guided by his word and his spirit, we know that there is a higher standard of right and wrong. It is the standard that has been set by by our Lord. And so we discover right out of the chute, right out of the chute, love is not fuzzy, it's not just cuddly. Right out of the chute, we discover that love is tough. Love is not wimpy. Paul says we should hate what is evil. And, he says, we should hold fast to what is good. Just at the same time as we're saying, we're identifying these broken, evil forces that are at work in our life. He says, and I want you to look for the things that are good and cling to them. That phrase actually means to stick to something like glue. Stick to something like glue. I want you to stick to good things like glue. This last week, I was was uh, gluing together some PVC pipe uh, for... uh, yet one more of our projects that we're doing in remodeling our house. And uh, Cindy saw me doing this and said, don't you want to put gloves on? Isn't that stuff going to be hard to get off your hands? (laughs) Gloves are for sissies, I said. And of course, I was walking around the rest of the day like this. I'm still getting pieces of glue off of my hands Gloves are still for sissies, though. But uh, Paul is saying, listen, whatever, I, I want you to find what is good, identify what is good, and then stick to it like glue. He said something similar about the way we ought to think in Philippians. Remember this? He said, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about those things. Find the good things and think about them. And here he would say, find the good things and hold on tight. So genuine, non-hypocrite love, it ain't wimpy. It's tough. It's discerning. Here is what it is. It is also humble. Paul writes, outdo one another in showing honor. Think about that one for a moment. Outdo one another in showing honor. In our culture, really? 
Our culture where it is our job to climb the ladder, which means we've got to climb past others. It is our job to make a name for ourselves by being the best. Paul says, I want you to be the best, all right. I want you to be the best at honoring others, the best at lifting up other people, the best at shining the spotlight on other folks. One of the great professors that came out of Whitworth University was a guy named Dale Bruner. Dale's still alive, he's still writing, he's retired now. But when we went to his seminars, people would pack the place out because they were so eager to hear this guy. He, he, he had the, the New Testament memorized in Greek and then he would translate it from Greek into English. He always stood there and he would do this as he was translating it, remembering it and recounting it to us. So we would sit and we would listen to this and then we would just be astounded by his teaching. And so he packed out the seminar rooms. The problem is that Dale never started right into his teaching. He always started by honoring others. He would, he would honor the, the person who just introduced him for something that he had done well. He would honor those who had put together the conference for how well they had organized everything. He would honor the, 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 the audience that was seated there to learn from him on how smart and how receptive they had been. On and on he would go, and we were sitting out there saying, we don't want you to honor us. We want to honor you by hearing what you have to say. And yet he would, he would have nothing of it. Dale Bruner was always more interested in honoring others than honoring himself. That is a wonderful image of what Paul's talking about. And he picks up this theme later on in verse 16. He says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. I love that word, don't you? It even sounds arrogant. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. You know, there are four words that might sum that up in a little more terse fashion. He says, don't be a snob. Don't be a church snob. You ever known Christian snobs? They are not pleasant. Listen, snobbery in general is tough. Snobbery in the religious setting, it is the worst. A few years ago, I was on sabbatical in, um, in Scotland. I was uh, taking a tour through Holyrood Palace in Edinburgh. It's down at the bottom of the Royal Mile. It's where the queen takes residence during the summer. And they had a very good young guide who was taking us from room to room and giving us the background. I had read a little Scottish history, and so I was paying attention and very interested. And I was surprised then when she said something that I knew could not possibly be true. And so I just raised my hand to ask a question of clarification. And, uh, and there were two English women who were standing near me who apparently uh, could not control the volume of their speech. Because when I asked the question, one of the English women said, that was a very good question, the gentleman asked. And the other responded, that was no gentleman, that was an American. <laughs> I don't think that was a compliment. <laughs> the class system is still a reality in Great Britain, but... As a matter of fact, the class system is a reality in our own country too. It's just a little less stratified. But we have the haves and the haves nots. We have the us's and the them's. And if anything in this political season has taught us, we are, we are divided as a people. We have structure in place, don't we? You heard Rachel share earlier, she has been serving in Richmond, Virginia. Richmond is, was the capital of the Confederacy. And and she has never lived in the South. And so this has been quite a, a culture shock to her. She called after about one month of ministering there, and she said, Daddy, I just realized when they say that the wrong side of the tracks, that's a real thing. 
That's a real thing because here in Richmond, there really are tracks. And if you live on the wrong side of them, you really are in the bottom rung of society here. She found that quite disturbing. Now, we don't have tracks in Gig Harbor, but we have some snobs. And isn't that really what he's saying? All of that is a way of saying, don't be snobs. There's nothing worse than Christian snobbery. Snobbery easily infiltrates the church. And so one of the questions that we would beg to be asked is, how well do you do at loving those pewmates who sit down next to you, who are different than you, who come from a background other than you, who smell of something that's not quite right according to the way you live? How well do you do at that? Paul says genuine agape is tough. He says it is also humble. And finally, Paul says it's compassionate. Paul says contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. This is inside-outside language. Inside-outside. First of all, he says, he says, contribute to the needs of the saints. Saints, that's us. If you're in Jesus, if you're part of the church, then that's another way of talking about us. He, he calls us the saints. Now, we might think he's saying, and be ready to write a big check to someone who needs it. Contribute to the needs. But actually, the root word for contribute there is fellowship, like koinonia, fellowship. And what he seems to be saying is, share in the needs, share in the sufferings of your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That might mean writing a check, but it also might be doing what one of our life groups does, which is regularly go out and find houses that need to be repaired and does that work for them. It might be uh, being willing to say to the widow who says, I need a ride to church. Will anyone take me? And by the way, after first service, someone said, I'll take that widow to church. It means stepping up and saying, "I'm, I'm willing to meet your needs. Sometimes it means weeping with those who weep. Weeping with those who weep. I, um, I was given this, this note that someone found in the pew right about here for service. It says, I'm just a worthless person, no family, no friends, no hope, all alone, unwanted and unloved, no reason to live. That ought to make you cry. And I hope that the person who wrote that will identify themselves, will make themselves known because we have people, we have ministries that we would love to reach out and, and tell you what you believe is not true. You are not unwanted. You are, you are not hopeless. You have a, a family that would love to embrace you. You have a God who thinks you're terrific. You do have a future. You do have a place. And as you're working through that, we're going to lean into whatever it is that would cause you to weep in ink on a paper like this. He says, weep with those who weep. We are to fellowship. We are to share in the needs and the sufferings of our fellow saints. That's inwardly turned. But he goes on to say that we are also to show hospitality. That's stranger language, stranger danger. We're supposed to show hospitality to strangers when they walk through the doors. That's very outward. I heard this week from someone who wants to know why we do so much that is focused on visitors. Why we do so much that is focused on the stranger. They were objecting to that. Things like our mugging of our first-time guests after service or things like Alpha, which is really focused on the outsider. Why do we do all these? They were disturbed that we were so outwardly focused. I am disturbed that they were disturbed that we are so outwardly focused. 
And a, a good starting point in response would be, read this verse. Part of what it means to love genuinely, to love not hypocrite, is to welcome strangers. In fact, if you watch the ministry of Jesus, he was always welcoming the outsiders. And the whole of the Old Testament spoke again and again of that as a a value of God's people, that we welcome the outsider who want to be a part of us. And honestly, I think that we have become a little inwardly focused as a congregation. Perhaps we become comfortable about who we are and the friendships that we enjoy, and we're just not as aware of or not as interested in welcoming the strangers as, as we once were. Do you know what that means if that's really where you are? It means you forgot what it's like to be a stranger. There are very few of you here who were here from the beginning. And if you were not, then there was a moment when you walked into this church for the first time. Aren't you glad that someone said, welcome? I had a woman who came up afterwards. She said, I still remember the day. It was, it was Jane Dawn. She saw me walking in. I had never been to a women's Bible study before. I was shaking literally. Jane walks up and says, welcome, wraps her arms around me. I will never forget that moment as she's been here for 20 some years since. Don't you want to be the kind of place where the stranger walks in? They don't even know why they were brought here. But something stirred them. And of course, we know who the something, the someone is. Someone brought them in here. And we say, we're glad you're here. Would you come in? There is room for you in the pew next to me. I think that we need to revive this in our church a little bit. There was a time when it was a a more significant part of our values as a culture. I think it's time for us to fan the flames. And in the coming year, you're going to hear us talking more and more about what it means to turn our hearts outward. So that's a tiny little reproof. But having said that, I need to tell you this in sum. As I look over the list that Paul offers there, I was reminded once again of why I have a nickname for you all. You know what my nickname is for you, right? The Sweetheart Church. You're my sweetheart church. You know, if you, after 30 years, you can call your wife your sweetheart and mean it. If after 30 years of ministry, you can call your church the sweetheart church and mean it, that says something. And, and, I, and I would say we're not perfect. No church is. And if you find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it the minute you do. We've had our hard times as a church. Every church does. And in fact, we've been going through some tough times these last couple of weeks. But despite our difficulties, despite our flaws, Chapel Hill is a sweetheart church because at its core, you are loving. At its core, you're not spiritual snobs. At its core, you are courageous in standing up to the things of evil. At its core, you have been a compassionate church. And as I look at that list, I don't feel like I have to say, Start doing these things, Chapel Hill. I feel like I want to say, keep it up, Chapel Hill. Friday morning was a big day in the Toon family because our daughter Rachel was examined at our presbytery. That's our regional religious gathering. Our church is from the region. And after her examination, she was approved to be ordained as a minister of the gospel in our denomination. It was really pretty surreal for me. Uh, It was pretty emotional for me, especially when that knucklehead surprised me by saying, would you like to pray now for Rachel in front of, you know, I I, I choked, I choked, like just choked like a big hairball, I choked. But I, I was thinking back as I was watching this unfold before me and I remember vividly December 1992 Uh, when Cindy and Rachel and I took our first 
three-person family portrait for Chapel Hill Church. Her head was still, her neck was so wobbly that we couldn't keep her up. We, it, it was like a weeble wobbling back and forth. We had to prop the head up and hold it in place for the picture. I don't know if I used duct tape or what I did, but we held, had to hold it there. And I, and I remember shortly after that, with her dressed in her little Scottish tartan dress, baptizing her in the old chapel and walking her up and down the aisles. And I have a thousand other memories of the way that you as the congregation have formed and shaped this woman into the person she's become. I, it was never my aspiration that Rachel would be a pastor. What I hope for her is that she would love God and she would love God's church and in the end, she would love her family too. It turned out though that God's church, specifically this part of God's church, beat her to the punch. You loved her first. You called something out of her. You, you gave her a glimpse of, of a future that God intended. And so I will say what I've said so many times before. I am so grateful for the way that you have agaped me and my family and for the ways that you have agaped thousands of others who've walked in through our doors and experienced the warmth of the body of Christ. So uh, thank you. Thank you for who you are. It doesn't mean that we have no room to grow. It doesn't mean that there's some, some of these that we need to work on. But I would say, as I said earlier, I don't feel like I have to tell you, get started. I feel like I say, keep it up. Keep it up. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the privilege of serving this church, for being a part of this church family. I, uh, I love you for it. It's been one of the kindnesses that you have poured out in my life. Thank you that my family, my children, have been loved by, known by, called by your church. And I pray, God, that that which we've experienced as a family would be experienced again and again, one family after another after another. Lord, help us to know what it means to be non-hypocrite lovers. Help us to know what it means to create a culture when people walk in, despite their background, what they look like, what they're dressed like, that they find a place where we are able to say, welcome, we got room for you. we got a place for you. We've been waiting for you. Come on in. May we be that kind of a place, God. And because of that, may hundreds and thousands come to know Jesus Christ. For we pray it in his name. Amen.